Church on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God. Uh, being a workman who's not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So glad you can join us for this hour. If you are a first time listener, the Bible line is a one hour ministry where we take people's questions and all you have to do is pick up the phone and you can call us. Maybe there's a passage you're studying that you've been challenged with, or there's an issue you're facing in your personal ministry or family life that you'd like biblical counsel on. The number locally again is uh, 843-525-1859. The toll free number is 877. The call letters WAGP 980. Uh, When you call, you can go on the air live or a lot of people are just more comfortable dictating their question and we're happy to take it either way. Or you can dictate it directly, email us here into the studio And the email address is TBL, that stands for The Bible Line, TBL at WAGP dot net. All right, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started here this morning. I think a number of questions have already come in and let's see where we're at. We've got one, Justin from Bangor, Maine. He wants to know, what is the biblical purpose or objective for believers that meet on the first day of the week, the Sunday service? In other words, Should the intent and objective be to create an environment where unbelievers feel welcome and are able to understand the teachings of the pastor and the songs sung in worship? Uh, Or should the weekly meeting of believers be strictly for the teaching of God's word, the edification of the saints with the overall purpose of bringing glory and honor to God? There is a relatively new church in the area where I live in New England that is growing rapidly. Though the gospel is preached and the word of God is taught, There are lots of theatrics involved in the worship service to include LED lights flashing, a full band that's very talented, but the songs contain very simple and repetitive lyrics. For example, God is good, God is good, God is good. The pastor refuses to preach deeper theological sermons because, as he states, the new people and new Christians wouldn't understand. There are no hymns, and the pastor points out every week the number of people in his congregation and how this church is the biggest around and growing. He states very clearly that this weekly gathering is a place where the believers are to bring the non-believers in to hear the gospel, and they cater to the unbelievers during the Sunday service. When questioned on why he doesn't go deeper in the scriptures, his response is that people are getting saved, and that's all that matters. On the flip side, the church I attend focuses more on training and teaching the believers and making sure the believers' needs are met in the church during the Sunday morning service. Though not to say that the church I attend is not without faults, what is the correct biblical model for the weekly gathering of believers? Any biblical advice that you can offer concerning this matter would be greatly appreciated. It's a great question, and it's a major issue concerning how do we do church on Sunday morning. You know, if you take a truth and you emphasize it to the exclusion of a second balancing truth, then that truth becomes an untruth. And I think that's what we're really dealing with here today. It's much like a, you know, a pastor who emphasizes the love of God to the exclusion of God's wrath. 
then he is out of balance. It's become an untruth or a pastor emphasizes the wrath of God, but doesn't speak of God's grace. You either have truthless love or you have loveless truth. And so God's called us to balance. Let me just say first that if you want to do an in-depth study, and it sounds like maybe this would be helpful to you, uh, consider the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy and Titus. In fact, I've preached all the way through those. And if you go to searchthescriptures.org, there are many messages on it. But why do we do church the way we do church? Well, because of the biblical admonition that the gathering on the first day of the week is principally with the believers who are in mind. Now, should unbelievers come? Absolutely. They should come and we should be inviting them. And so while we have a service that is geared first and foremost for the believer, the unbeliever who's been invited, who's kind of quote unquote eavesdropping, uh, we are to try to reach them for Christ. Does Paul assume that the unbeliever will be in the local assembly? Yes. For instance, in first Corinthians 14, where he opens the chapter, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you, you all, is plural in the Greek New Text, you may prophesy. And so here you had the Corinthian church that was placing an emphasis on tongues that weren't even being translated, and people had no idea really what was going on. And so Paul said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I might instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. And then he says, so then tongues are assigned not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is assigned for unbelievers, but not for unbelievers, but to those who believe. So there is a definitive statement. He says that prophecy, the preaching of God's word and prophecy had two dimensions initially because the Bible was not initially completed. So they couldn't go to first Corinthians or Ephesians because the Bible was being written. So God gave in some respects direct revelation, but in the word of God, prophecy in both the office and the gift initially had two dimensions to it. There was a foretelling where there was new revelation being given, but there was also a foretelling. And you see that even with the Old Testament prophets, they quote each other. They quote what a prior prophet said, or uh, they'll give revelation and then repeat it over and over and over again. Now that we have a completed Bible, uh, we don't have new revelation because the canon of scripture is closed. But he reminds us again, when the church is gathered, what are they to emphasize prophecy that you all may prophesy and it's uh, in the plural there. Now I understand obviously because Paul states it in four different places in the new Testament that we have no control over what spiritual gifts we get. That's determined by God himself. He puts the body of Christ together. He gives the various gift mixes so that we can function just like the human body needs each and every part to function properly. So does the church body. But with that said, in terms of the gathering of the church, when the worship service is taking place, which is what the context of 12 through 14 of first Corinthians is focusing on that preaching is to be given preeminence over the other gifts. Not that it's more important, but it's critical for the edification. So prophecy preaching 
is not focused to unbelievers, he says, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and an ungifted men or unbelievers enter in, he's talking about lost people, because lost people don't have spiritual gifts. It's only given to those who are born again. They may have talents, natural skills and abilities that they acquired at physical birth, or, um, but they don't have spiritual gifts because that comes when you are born again. And so if uh, there's not a clear word, he said, won't they say you're all crazy, you're mad, but if all prophesy in an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account to all and the secrets of his heart are disclosed so that he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God certainly is among you. So there's an assumption in these verses that unbelievers are there. How'd they get there? Believers invited them. They reached out to them. Why? Because we are to be about the Great Commission. As you go, make disciples, make converts, not do discipleship. That's a banner a lot of Christians have hidden under, and they say, well, I'm discipling Joe, and he comes to my weekly Bible study, but but the guy leading the Bible study never shares his faith with unbelievers. And so we are as we go, we make disciples. It's not do discipleship. Certainly the concept of discipleship is in the great commission, but that's not the admonition at Matthew 28. As you go, therefore make converts of all nations. This is the great commission in deference to the limited commission that you find earlier in Matthew's gospel, where he says, don't go to the way of the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans who are half Jew, half Gentile. Go just to the people of the house of Israel. God is a promise keeping God. Now he expands the promise. And so about 400 years ago, someone coined the term great commission because it's to all nations and it's as you're going, it's not a a missionary verse, go to Africa, go to Brazil, go to uh, India. But as you go, as you go, where, as you go, everywhere you go, share the gospel, make disciples, make converts of all peoples. So we are to be engaged in that. And if God's people are doing that during the week, certainly there will be unbelievers will show up at the worship service. But as you just have heard from 1 Corinthians 14, but especially as you read the pastoral epistles, when the church is assembled, the preaching of God's word to his people is to take precedence over anything else. And so, yes, you describe this church and the pastor rationalizes, and that's what it is. It's a rationalization. A rationalization is a rational lie. He's kind of deceived himself. Now, his goal in terms of wanting to reach people is admirable, but you do not reach people at the expense of compromising another biblical truth. And so what is he doing? He's emphasizing one truth, reaching the lost to the exclusion of another truth, edifying the saints. And so as you read through the pastoral epistles, it's very clear that when the church is gathered, they are to preach the word in season and out of season. They are to teach sound doctrine. That is a major focus when the church is together. We don't apologize for that. Preach the word in season, out of season. Reprove, mm, rebuke. Oh, no, that wouldn't be seeker sensitive. Reprove, rebuke. Uh, That's pretty straightforward, is it not? I think so. Um, I mean, God can't say it much plainer than that exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come 
when they will not endure sound doctrine. You know, doctrine, uh, 45 times in the New Testament, we're told that we're to teach doctrine. That doesn't sound like it's happening in the service you are describing. Sound doctrine, the word sound is actually a medical term. Healthy doctrine, where do you find that? In the word of God. People say, well, doctrine divides. Yes, it does. It divides truth from error, believers from unbelievers. We are to teach the word of God. Certainly, we keep the unbeliever in mind. I very, very rarely preach a sermon where I don't address the unbeliever or give the unbeliever a chance to uh, consider the claims of Christ. But my focus is not just the unbeliever. Now, we may have meetings where that's the focus. But when the church is gathered on Sunday morning, the saints are to be taught. What happens long term? The 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 the, uh, paradigm that this pastor up there in Maine has developed is disastrous. It's absolutely disastrous. It's going to destroy the health of a local church. Why? Because as people come long enough and as the decades proceed, then you're going to have a mess like you have at Willow Creek in Chicago. So now Bill Hybels, you know, he, he brought us him and Rick Warren, some new church paradigm, some new revelation on how we should reach people for Christ. And it's produced massive numbers. And so now we have some of the largest churches in American church history. But we have the least amount of influence. The body of Christ is weak. The body of Christ is lukewarm in many places across our country, having very little influence. And in many churches, there is as many unbelievers mixed into the membership as there are with believers. So Bill Hybels, you know, he's now picked a a woman to be his... uh, one of his lead pastors on Sunday morning. Uh, he picked two people, a man and a woman. Look, a, a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. But, you know, they're just blind at that church. They don't know sound doctrine. They don't know which end is up. And so, oh, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds really welcoming. And let's, let's just do that. Let's forsake God's patterns and God's ways. And so he can have a Rob Bell standing up in his church and preach. Rob Bell, who writes a book, Love Wins, his entire congregation gives them, gives the man a standing ovation, and he denies the eternal retribution of God, that in the end, everybody goes to heaven. That's universalism. That's absolute heresy. And so, again, it, it produces numbers, but our goal is not to produce numbers. Our goal is to preach the gospel. God will bring the numbers. God causes the growth. So, again, I would say to this brother, you know, it might be that the church you're in has lost its evangelistic passion and they need some of that, but they don't need to do it at the exclusion of following God's mandates as to what should happen at the church service. So I have a sermon out of the book of Acts, how to do church on Sunday morning. That might be helpful as well. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right. We had a caller who said that they had read an article that said Jesus was crucified on Wednesday, spent three literal days in the tomb, so was raised on the Jewish Sabbath Saturday, and that Good Friday originated by the Catholics. Could you please comment? Well, that article was probably written by the Worldwide Church of God. They're about the only people who argue for a Sunday resurrection. The Bible does say on the first day of the week. Which day is the first day? The last day is Saturday. The first day of the week is Sunday, not Monday. Now, interestingly, in the Russian calendar uh, that they've used for years and years and years under communism because they wanted to obliterate every vestige of God, 
most uh, calendars in the world, when you look at them, they show it goes from Sunday through Saturday. On a Russian calendar, because of their atheistic emphasis, the, they had Monday through Sunday. And again, they were trying to dismiss the important thought that the first day of the week was Sunday. So you're reading actually an article by a, a group that was founded by a guy who didn't believe in the deity of Christ. And he's propagated a lot of heresy. He's dead now. He knows better. Uh, but nonetheless, um, there are some Christians, though, who argue for a Thursday crucifixion. And they take the uh, prophecy three days and three nights uh, that Jesus mentioned, uh, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, three days, three nights, so the Son of Man, and they would argue, therefore, it must be a Thursday crucifixion with a resurrection on Sunday. No Orthodox Christian has ever denied that Jesus rose on Sunday, the first day of the week. Why do we meet on Sunday, the first day of the week? Because it's a, because the Catholic Church tells us to? No, not at all. That's, again, some people like Seventh-day Adventists. Um, they don't deny that Jesus was raised in the first day of the week, but they try to build a case that Roman Catholicism taught us to worship on the first day of the week. No, Roman Catholicism didn't teach us that. That's the pattern in the New Testament in that God's people met on the first day of the week. When you meet on the first day of the week, set aside in store what, for instance, God has prospered in your life. And so the pattern of meeting on the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection is what the church, the body of Christ does. That's in contradistinction to Israel. That was God's old covenant people. God's not done with Israel. In fact, he's not done with the Sabbath. During the millennial reign of Messiah, we will go back. The prophet Ezekiel tells us to worshiping on the seventh day as we're all brought together, Jew and Gentile from across the world. But... Uh, some do argue for a Thursday crucifixion, and there are some good people who do that. Uh, there is certainly, you can argue it both ways. The Friday, the more traditional view, uh, argues that a part of a day can represent a whole day. And there are many biblical examples of that. Um, the book of Esther might be one that you could read. But the, but the example that you read, the article you read, it was written by some cult. It wasn't written by any Orthodox Christian. So while the day of the week might be debated between Thursday and Friday in terms of the crucifixion, the day of the resurrection has never been debated by any Orthodox Christian in the history of the church. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and another caller called in and would like to know when Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison, as it mentions in 1 Peter three eighteen to 22, did he physically descend into hell, or was he looking down into hell from righteous Sheol? It's a good question, and it's one that often comes up. Uh, so let me just go to that passage in First Peter chapter 3. Uh, he says, of course, in verse 15, an off-quoted verse, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So Christ is to be set aside in our heart as Lord. And when he's Lord in our hearts, when he's on the throne of our life, then he'll be on our lips. We'll be able to carry out this ability to make a defense, an apology. Uh, so we speak of Christian apologetics. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. 
So make sure that your lifestyle matches what you say. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what's right rather than for doing what's wrong. God has certainly called us as Christians to suffer. We don't like to talk about that today, but he calls us to suffer not for doing what's wrong, but for doing what's right. Um, unjust suffering, as he has already illustrated at the end of chapter two. Then he says, for Christ also died for sins once for all. He clearly is an example of unjust suffering, the just for the unjust. He was perfect. No one could say, well, we're punishing Jesus because he did something bad or said something bad or even thought something bad. Everything Jesus said, said, thought and did was absolutely holy. So he died, the just for the unjust. That's him for us. So that here's the reason he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now, please note what it does not say. The text does not say that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the flesh. That's true, but that happened on the third day, which he will affirm at the end of this section of scripture, that Jesus is raised and exalted and seated at the right hand of the father. He physically arose, but he is affirming here that he was put to death in the flesh. That's when he died on the cross, but made alive in the spirit in which in his spirit, he went and made proclamation to who? to the spirits now in prison. Uh, some have taken this verse universalist to say, well, Jesus went and preached to people who died and were in hell in order to give them a second chance. That's not true. He made it clear in Luke 16 when he told the uh, parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Some think it's not a parable, that it's a historical event in that it would be the only parable where someone is named, but it doesn't change the truth at all. But he makes it very clear that there is a fixed chasm between us and them, that they cannot cross over from one place to the other. It's appointed for a man to die once and then comes the judgment. Uh, when he describes eternal death, a Ionion is the word for eternal. It's the same word that's used for eternal life. So what one is, the other is. Just like heaven is forever, hell is forever. So he went and he made proclamation. He preached, it's K. Russo, uh, to those who are now in prison. In other words, they're in this place. Uh, it's called Tartarus. Uh, and they are in a place of binding. Who are these spirits? I think these are angelic spirits. How do I know? Because they once were disobedience when the patience of God kept awaiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. He's talking about some, some spirits and the word that's used here for spirit is principally used in the new Testament of angelic beings. He's speaking of some angels who did something during the days of Noah. What did they do? Well, you can listen to my sermon on Genesis chapter six, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God cohabitated, not with the daughters of God, but the daughters of men. And so they came down and had a physical relationship with the daughters of men. And when Jude describes these, he says, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he, God, has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. 
just like, so he's making an analogy here, just like Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, is the same way as these who, is the same way as, the, as these angels indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. What they did in Sodom was totally unnatural. Men with men, women with women. God calls that an abomination. It still is. Well, these angels also left their proper abode and that they cohabitated with women. You say, well, angels can't have relationships and procreate. Well, angels don't procreate with angels and have little angel babies. And in that sense, when we get to heaven, we are like the angels. We don't become angels, but we're like the angels and that we don't procreate in heaven. But angels are able to have a physical relationship with men. Listen, the two angels who are in Lot's house, those homosexuals that were, I mean, they had been blinded by the angels and yet they're still militant. They're still trying to break down the door. Why? To come in and have a physical relationship with those men, uh, just driven by their lust. And so why does first Peter three mention this? Because there's a certain category of angels and we've been um, doing kind of a, a mini dialogue on angels in our uh, exposition of the book of Revelation. And recently we were speaking about the fact, you know, you can take all angels and divide them into two sections, uh, two thirds that are holy angels, one third that are fallen angels. And then you can take those one third of the fallen angels and you can put those into certain categories. Some today are in the abyss. Uh, that's a place of temporary lockup. There's a day coming as Revelation 9 teaches when a Paulon, a particular angel who has charge over the abyss, is going to open up the abyss and let out a horde of demons that are black in the sky. There's so many, they're like locusts. And they will torment men for five months. Uh, Jesus, if you remember, when he met the madmen of Gadara, uh, he was in a situation where uh, he cast uh, a de the head demon named Legion and all that he represented, over 2,000 of them, into a herd of swine. And they were begging him not to be sent into the abyss. Why? Because if they were sent into the abyss, then their ability to wage war and torment men would have been lost. And so there are some fallen angels who are in the abyss. They're going to be let out someday. In fact, the devil during the millennial reign of Messiah for a thousand years is going to be thrown into the abyss. Uh, then there are some angels that are in Tartarus, which is the word here for hell. And then, which is used in, I didn't read it, but it's used in second Peter in the parallel passage where God describes the same group of angels, just like Jude does who are under eternal bonds. Uh, he says then the, um, under eternal bonds for the day of judgment. And he describes them here in second Peter as being in Tartarus. So it's a particular holding cell for a group of fallen angels. And so remember when Jesus died on the cross, Colossians two says he made a spectacle of the fallen angels that they saw, they witnessed through his resurrection, his death and resurrection, his victory over the fallen realm. But there was one group of angels who were totally unaware of Jesus's victory. And that's why Jesus went on a preaching mission. He's not preaching to people have never heard. He's preaching to a group of angelic spirits. Why? To announce his victory. And God wants to underscore to these believers who are suffering unjustly that there's victory in heaven above, on earth below, and even in the deepest 
caverns of hell where one category of angels are locked up in eternal bonds. And that would be a tremendous encouragement to these believers. You, I have some sermons on this, uh, maybe start in Genesis 6, and I kind of walk through the whole passage, uh, including 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude, where we have divine commentary on Genesis 6. Great question that's been called in. Let's go to the next. All right, another person called in and would like to know, are the Masons antithetical to the Christian faith? Good question. Um, Let me just say there's a lot of Masons who unknowingly are in a group that has strong, deep religious undertones. I mean, they're just some guys They get together with other guys. They do some community service. They um, they don't move past the third rank of the 33 or however many there is in in Masonry. But as you move through the ranks of Freemasonry, you discover that there is really religious undertones that are antithetical to the word of God. Southern Baptists in the 1980s, I still have their uh, survey that was not their survey, but their study that was done at one of the Southern Baptist conventions during the 1980s. They commissioned a study because they discovered that about 750,000 Southern Baptist men, including pastors, were engaged in Freemasonry. And the fruit of the study basically said, look, Freemasonry is not something that we should be involved in because you don't want to give endorsement. You know, a church showed up on our church website where there was going to be some testing done. I said, take that down. Look, that church doesn't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. They're cooperative Baptists. They didn't, they're financing cooperative Baptists who are involved in things that are antithetical to scripture. So for us to promote homeschoolers to go to testing at that church is to endorse that church. And we don't want to do that. And so for a Christian to be involved in masonry, knowingly or unknowingly, and he need not be ignorant, he is involving himself in in an organization that, for instance, denies the deity of Christ. They do officially. Have you ever read a Masonic Bible? Uh, You could probably Google it, go to eBay, the used book thing, half.com, and type in Masonic Bible with all the study notes and read the study notes, and you find out, man, these people... Uh, do not represent Christian theology. I won't let those Masons come with their dirty aprons and do some kind of a show at uh, a funeral that I'm going to preach if, uh, if per se, someone is engaged in Freemasonry. So anyway, it's not a good organization. If you want to read, a, I think, a very helpful uh, study, one was that's very uh, user-friendly. One was done by Dr. Norman Geisler. So you could Google Norman Geisler Freemasonry. He wrote just a little short booklet that would give you some good ammo. And this fellow, John Ankelberg, um, he used to have a TV show on. I don't know if he's on anymore, but he did an excellent study back in the early 90s on Freemasonry. Again, very user-friendly. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what Mason says. And really, any thinking person, if they just know a little bit of the Bible, will see, oh, no, this is not a good thing to be engaged in. Very good. Another caller just called in, and they've got a sad situation. But her main question is, does God get angry when people go through things that make them question his will? Well, you know, certainly God gets angry. It's a righteous anger. So sometimes people think all anger is sin. God's sinless. Everything he thought did and, and uh, said was absolutely holy. So when Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple, somebody said, well, he lost his cool. No, he didn't. That was a righteous anger. He was absolutely 
in control of himself. And so Paul can command you in the book of Ephesians, be angry, but do not sin. What does that tell you? It tells you that not all anger is sinful. So um, with that said, yes, when a Christian uh, does what's evil and wrong, God is displeased. Many examples, just reading the Old Testament of how God dealt with his people, Israel, just read the Torah, the first five books, especially Exodus and Numbers, and you'll see numerous examples where God is upset with his people. And nonetheless, that doesn't change his love for us. His love for us is unconditional. But those whom the Lord loves, Hebrews 12 says he disciplines. He says, if you're without discipline, Hebrews 12, you're illegitimate and not true sons. So God doesn't discipline an unbelieving world. Now he will ultimately judge them if they remain in their unbelief with eternal retribution, but he disciplines only those whom he loves. You say, I thought God loves everybody. Well, he does in a broad sense, but in a specific sense, he has a special love for his own people. For God so loved the world. The world means world. Doesn't mean elect. It doesn't mean some select few. Jesus's atonement was not for a limited number of people. It was unlimited. He died for all people. And so my hyper-Calvinistic friends who believe in limited redemption or a particular atonement or whatever you want to call it, they're just wrong. And I meet people, Christians in other parts of the world, and occasionally I, say, I heard about this. How, how, how do they ever get that? They, they're educated into it. The simple reading of scripture would never lead anyone to think that. And that's why it's been a rejected doctrine. And my son, Jeremy, actually wrote a paper at Liberty. I thought it was excellent where he showed that even John Calvin didn't believe in limited atonement. So while God loves the whole world and gave his son for them, he has a special affinity towards those who are his. And so we're called beloved of God and we're called his beloved. So my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord in Hebrews 12, five and six, quoting Proverbs, nor faint when you're reproved by him for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. I don't discipline the next door neighbor's children. The only children I ever disciplined were my own because I have a special tie to them. And so it is with our heavenly father. And in his righteous anger, he may discipline you. He may take you to the woodshed. And any uh, discipline will be commensurate with what you've done. Good question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a live caller waiting. We do indeed. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, thank you. Um, Pastor, I'm wondering, uh, I know that Isaac is uh, a type of Christ. Yes. And I I think that Joseph is the same. And I know that there's other types that appear in the Old Testament. And I'm wondering, uh, why is that important? That's a great question. Now, there are certainly some that are named as types, and so there's no debate on that. Certainly, people sometimes with typology can go kind of crazy and see everything as a type when it may not be a type at all. But when you come to to Isaac, he certainly is a type of Christ. You say, how do I know? Because Hebrews chapter 12 tells, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11 the great um, hall of fame of faith tells me that he was a type in the word. It, let me just read it to you. Uh, it was he to whom it was said. Well, let me back up a verse by faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Interestingly, just a side note here. 
The word is monogene. There are only two people in all the Bible who are called only begotten. One is Isaac and the other is Christ. For God so loved the world, he gave his monogene, his uniquely special begotten son. Now, Jesus obviously did not have a human father. And in that sense, he was not a monogene, but he was in the sense in that it was a miracle birth. And Isaac's birth was miraculous. Uh, God let them wait and finally gave them the whole picture. And when Abraham's body was good as dead, he had no power to procreate. And uh, he's uh, nearly 100 and, and Sarah's 90 and she's way past her ability to have children. Uh, God allows them to have a baby. It was a miracle birth. And in that sense, Isaac is a monogene. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Not in Ishmael. God had, um, remember Ishmael who came through Hagar. And Hagar was Sarah's solution to the problem. God said, Abraham, you're going to have an offspring. Oh, it must be Eleazar, my, my, my servant. No, 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 no. You are going to have uh, offspring from your loins. And of course, Sarah thinks, well, I can't get pregnant. God must want you to take my wife, Hagar. So she mar- he has a relationship with Hagar. Uh, they end up uh, having Ishmael. Ishmael ends up having 12 sons. And Ishmael is a donkey of a man. Uh, Hagar, she's described as a believer. And I think God blessed Ishmael as well. You won't see Ishmael in heaven. But he is a picture of the flesh. He is a picture of human effort, as Paul describes him in Galatians. But God didn't give Abraham this son whom he really loved. I mean, he loved Ishmael. Did he give him Ishmael to send him to hell? I think not. And if Abraham is the father of the faithful, and he is, would he not as the father of the faithful, an example, the primary example of a man who walked by faith, not be able to communicate the faith to his son Ishmael? Of course he did. But nonetheless, God's design was not to bring his descendants from which Messiah would come through Hagar, through Ishmael. So God waits and he gives them a miracle Babel. And he says, through Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received them back as a two boss, a type. So here is Abraham. He is called to go up to the top of Mount Moriah. By the way, where was Jesus crucified on Mount Moriah? And he says to his servants, no, you stay here. We will return. Not I will return. We will return. That one little Hebrew pronoun is very telling. And so he goes up to the top of Mount Moriah and he's going there to offer his son. And of course, remember, Isaac is not, you know, eight, 10 years old as some Sunday school pictures uh, portray him. He is at least 20 years of age when you put the chronology, 19, 20 years of age together. So he's a strapping young man who could have easily overpowered his daddy, but he allowed his daddy to uh, rope him there to that altar. And his daddy is going to use him as a sacrifice. But you see, Abraham, not wavering faith, believed that God was going to raise him up from the dead. And so he raises the knife and he's ready to plunge it into his chest. And it's a Hebrew tense that 
excuse me, uh, Hebrew and a Greek tense that indicates in the Greek New Testament that, that does commentary on it, that it was settled in his mind that he was going to put the knife through and then God appeared through the angel of the Lord and said, don't do it. Stop. And he withheld him. And then, of course, there's a in the thicket uh, with uh, a crown of thorns captured around his head, a ram who's a picture of Christ and he becomes the substitute. But Isaac becomes a picture of Christ. And so when Jesus confronts the Pharisees who were the religious hoi polloi of the day, the big shots who thought they were righteous in themselves, um, they claimed Abraham as their father. And he said, look, if Abraham was your father, you'd do the deeds of Abraham as it is. You show you don't have genuine faith. You're of your father, the devil. Uh, on another occasion, he, he says, look, Abraham saw my day. Where did Abraham see Christ's day? Right up there. He got a full picture of what was going to happen. Now, why is this important? Remember, for the first uh, decade after Jesus ascends into heaven, uh, the first book of the Bible, Matthew, and then a lot of the books are going to be written all the way, you know, for the next 20, 25 years, with the exception of Revelation that comes about 95 AD when John's an old man. So when Paul reasons from the scriptures and he's preaching, is he saying, well, let me take you to the book of Romans. He hadn't written Romans yet. So what was he preaching? The scriptures. And so they would reason like, for instance, with the Bereans from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, that Jesus is Messiah. And look, in some parts of the world today, when I have an opportunity to witness to a Jewish person, they're not often interested in what Matthew says or what Romans says. The only thing they're interested in is what their scriptures say. The Tanakh, as they call it. They don't call it the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh which is an anacronym for Torah, the Nephaim, that's the Hebrew word for prophets, and the Ketuvim, the, um, the wisdom literature. And so you have to reason with them from their scriptures and show, no, their scriptures prove that Jesus is Messiah. And that's important. That's important for the Christian as well. So that, in that sense, types are really, really important. So, you know, you got a type like in Genesis of a big boat and, it's got three levels on it, one boat, three levels, one God, three persons, one door uh, that you have to go through. Jesus is that door. And when the door shut, God seals him in. And when you come through Christ, God seals you at the day of atonement. And there's all these pictures all the way through the Old Testament, really either through direct statement or through illustration or type proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line. And Lisa from Hilton Head writes, as a believer, can I use the power of scripture to rebuke Satan against the strongholds I witnessed to a close family member? If so, which scriptures? Well, it's a fair question. And there are certainly Christians who run around today who say, well, I've got the authority to rebuke the devil. And more than the authority, uh, they, they think that's something they should do as a way of life. But there's really no direct biblical basis that that should be the pattern of how we deal with problems. Satan's not omnipresent. He's created. So it, there may never be a time in your life where the devil himself comes after you. Uh, but he has, of course, legions and legions of fallen angels, and they certainly can be involved in attacking Christians. Though Christians cannot be possessed, they can certainly be attacked. And so Satan has at his fingertips you know, legions and legions of angels. And he, he, and he works through three forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
Uh, sometimes you can't blame the devil. All you can blame is your sinful flesh within. James talks about how each one is carried away by his own sinful inclination. Uh, in fact, a, a classic example of this will be the millennial reign of Christ because Satan for a thousand years will be in the abyss. And yet people will sin. The children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of tribulation saints who enter the millennium in their natural bodies and their children will have to make decisions for Christ just like your children do. They're not Christians just because you are. Each one has to make a decision. But with that said, Satan and his legions have significant power. You know, the Bible warns us we wage war not against uh, flesh and blood. In other words, our real enemy is not people. And that was an important lesson for the Ephesians to have branded into their hearts because, you know, they had this conflict with various people within the church. He says, your real enemy is not your folks in the church. Your real enemy is rulers and powers and wicked forces that are uh, at work in the heavenly places. So he has great power. He, he prowls about, the Bible says, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, but with that said, the emphasis in the Bible is not for us to rebuke the devil, but to resist the devil, flee from the devil, resist, um, I mean, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the promise. Most Christians don't think about the devil running from them. They think about them running from the devil. But the Bible says that um, just the, just the opposite, Satan can run from you. And you might want to listen to a message I preached I did a series out of the book of James and uh, you might want to go to that message in the book of James in the fourth chapter. And that might be really helpful to you. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's what God desires. Uh, now, certainly there are times when Christians may uh, deal with someone who's demon possessed, but that's not what we're talking about here. And people today can still be demon possessed, not a believer. No demon can be possessed. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But it's interesting when you read the account in Zechariah 3, and uh, God very clearly says, the Lord, it is the Lord who rebukes Satan. And very similarly in the book of Jude, when uh, Michael, the great archangel, has an encounter with Satan, he doesn't dare accuse or rebuke Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke you. So really, instead of focusing on defeating the devil, our focus should be on following Christ to keep our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith. And it's not really necessary for us to be going around rebuking the devil because God, as Ephesians 6 indicates, has given us a full set of armor and he's given us weapons. And he tells us that the weapons in gaining victory is our faith in his word. And so 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, for instance, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And he reminds us that our weapons are not earthly, they're not fleshly, but they're uh, divinely inspired. And so by faith, which is based on the word of God, and that's exactly, by the way, what Jesus does when he encounters the evil one, as recorded in uh, Matthew 4, Luke 4, and the temptation, he quotes the word of God. So good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next. Our next caller would like to know which scriptures refer to the dispensation of the church and what scriptures refer to the dispensation of the kingdom age. Well, um, just stay with me in our study of the book of Revelation. And uh, that's a really armchair question, but 
there are certainly different time frames in which God works in human history. Obviously, the way he worked before the fall was different than after the fall. The time he worked during the time of the law, when he had the Mosaic law, is different from the church age. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. There are some some people, and they call themselves Reformed Christians, who say, well, Israel was the Old Testament church, and we are the New Testament church, and we've replaced Israel. No, that's not true. That's that's just really... um, a distortion of God's word and it's predicated on some teaching that came from origin that came to Augustine that came into Roman Catholicism. And then some men who were saved out of Roman Catholicism kept that doctrine and they just put a different spin on it. Very clearly God's not done with Israel. He made some promises to Israel as Genesis 15 indicates that were unconditional. God made a unilateral covenant with the people of Israel And uh, he had Abraham put into a deep sleep and these animals were cut in two that he had Abraham cut and and then he puts him into a sleep. And instead of Abraham walking through the animals and then God, and that's what you typically did when you cut a covenant. When, I mean, something very super serious and you wanted to underscore that both of you are going to keep the terms of the deal, you cut a covenant. And you basically said, look, if I don't do like... um, I've promised you, may I become like these animals. And so God cuts the covenant and God walks through the animals because he wants to underscore that the, what he will call in Genesis 17, an eternal covenant that he's making with the Jewish people. It's not going to be broken. So the church is not the new Israel. We're in the church age and it's very different from what's going to happen during the tribulation. And it's very different from what is going to happen during the millennial reign of Messiah, Revelation 20. Um, For starters, I would probably encourage you to listen to the last three messages. I did four messages in the book of Daniel chapter 9 when I preached through the book of Daniel. And listen to at least the last three messages in Daniel 9. That will give you kind of the divine schematic that Daniel the prophet gives us that Jesus references in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, He still sees this future time for Israel. And there are some Christians in the Reformed faith who take what's called the preterist view of Revelation. Preter is from the Latin word past. And they say, well, all of Revelation is dealing with history, all done before 70 AD, with the exception of chapter 19 and follows. So the only future event is the second coming. That's just a gross distortion of how to interpret the word of God. And it's not a consistent Uh, means of interpreting the word of God. How do we interpret scripture? Well, I don't have to wonder because Jesus gave me a model. The Old Testament prophets, when they would quote other prophets, gave me a model. So like in Daniel 9, at the beginning of that chapter, maybe you should listen to all four messages. He is referencing the prophet Jeremiah, who says that the Jewish people are going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And he realizes, oh, this 70 years is almost up. What's next? And that's what precipitates the vision and the answer that God gives him at the end of Daniel 9. But how does he understand prophecy? It's plain, literal meaning. How were all of the prophecies, without a single exception, fulfilled concerning the first coming of Jesus? Literally, plainly. How can we expect the prophecies for the second coming to be fulfilled? Literally, plainly. And so you have to spiritualize so much of God's word. But again, 
the amillennialists, those in the quote-unquote reformed faith, and I would call myself a reformed Christian. I just apply the definition differently. It's a term that's been robbed from evangelicalism, much like the term charismatic has been robbed by us. There are charismatic Christians. Well, I hope if you're listening to me, you're a charismatic Christian, because all it means is that you believe God has given spiritual gifts to everyone in the body of Christ without exception. And that's what you should believe. And so unfortunately, it has been robbed and redefined in our day. Um, But listen, uh, there's some confused people today. Even Calvin, he wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible, but Revelation. But it's precipitated on some preconceived notions they have concerning the church. And so since the church has replaced Israel, the way you interpret 9, 10, and 11 of Romans is very, very different. You're not talking about a national election. Look, if you just sat down, just sit down in one sitting and read 9, 10, and 11 without interruption. Just I'm going to read Romans 9, 10, and 11. And I ask you, give me one word. What is the subject of 9, 10, and 11? You'll tell me Israel. That's the focus. The election of Israel in chapter 9, the rejection of Israel in chapter 10, why they are in unbelief, and the future restoration of Israel. So these, uh, I don't, you know, people, someone called last week about dispensation. I'm not a dispensationalist because uh, someone taught me that. I've just read the plain Bible. I didn't even know I was a dispensationalist until I later learned the term. Um, and, And again, the term can mean a lot of different things to different people, just like there are different stripes within the Reformed faith. And I don't want to broad brush all Reformed people. Um, But still, um, you know, the fact that there's a distinction between Israel and the church, that God's not done with Israel, that he used Israel to bring about the first coming, and he's going to use Israel to bring about the second coming is very significant, and we don't need to dismiss that. Okay, I think we've got time for this last question. What's your view of the new Christian standard version of the Bible? The CSV, or often called the HCSV, Holman Christian Standard Version, uh, it's a good translation. Uh, the Southern Baptists put it out. Um, you might want to go to my course on bibliology. I believe it's section six. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, um, we have a thing called the Institute of Biblical Studies where you have an opportunity to earn basically a Bible degree. I was talking to someone last night in Florence, South Carolina, and they want to become a missionary. And so they're working on a, a Bible certificate. Uh, which is basically an equivalent of about 30 to 35 hours of study, depending on the organization that's offering it. We had someone that went through the Bible certificate program at Search the Scriptures, and that that was received when they went into missions. So um, I have one course. It's called Bibliology, which is the study of the Bible. It's, It's not for the faint. It's over 500 pages of notes, but one section, section six, deals with an evaluation of the English translations. Overall, I think it's a good translation. Um, And really, even some of the more looser translations, you know, it's not going to affect anything doctrinally or otherwise, and I never want to disparage God's word, but I don't like, for instance, the new, new international version that came out in paper in 2011 that was more egalitarian and changed the meaning of words to make it more politically correct. But, uh, and there's one verse I don't particularly like in the CSV. Um, it's Malachi 2.16. I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. And they went with actually a Russian Targum. And why they did that, I don't know. 
But overall, it's a good translation, and um, we're out of time. We're perfectly good hour has gone, and I hope that you were able to be edified today. Thanks for being with us.